0: There is hardly an issue of any shelter magazine you can name that does not feature at least one home studded with Christopher Spitzmiller's gleaming and boldly colorful lamps. He has crafted lamps for four different White House administrations, Blair House, and many other distinguished American homes. With mentors like Albert Hadley and Mario Boada, it is no surprise that he's a traditionalist, but he has made tradition appealing to a whole new audience. Each of his pieces is handcrafted using age-old techniques, but he updates classic forms with vividly colored glazes and custom touches that make his work instantly recognizable and coveted. He has since expanded his range, and his lamps, tableware, platters, planters, garden stools, and ginger jars are sold at his own Manhattan showroom, at dozens of high-end outlets across the country, and fortunately, at Cherish. And he continues to create custom pieces for many of America's top designers. But Christopher is also a social media star. His many posts about the renovation and extensive transformation, Dovecote anyone? of Clovebrook Farm, the 1830 house and five-acre property in Millbrook, New York, drew so many thousands of entranced followers that it led to his best-selling book, A Year at Clovebrook Farm. The book, which is published by Rizzoli, is full not only of ravishing photographs, but also practical advice, techniques, recipes, and insights into how to beautify and enjoy any home. Long before our current maker moment and the recent resurgence of interest in ceramics, Christopher was creating beautiful objects and changing the way designers think about how to bring color, form, and light to their rooms. I'm so pleased that he's with us today. Welcome, Christopher. Thank you so much. You're going to make me cry with such a great
1: warm introduction.
0: Oh, you know, everybody okay,
1: says isn't it great how much you've achieved and I don't think about it. I don't think about it for a minute. All I have to think about is what I need to do next to get the next fire put out or the next plant planet or the next lamp made, you know, that's all I'm focused on is what today Which is, is in front of keep,
0: me. I mean, that's yeah. why you keep moving ahead. Yeah. But I want to I want to start sort of at the beginning. Early on, like, how did this all happen for you? Where did you go to school? Did you study ceramics? How did that? Because I have to say, Christopher, to me, you've always been like full blown, like you know um, <laughs> Venus from the head of Zeus. Um You've just I been wasn't. Like a I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was a
1: little kid that was lost. I was dyslexic. I couldn't spell. I could barely read. I had like my prognosis as a student was dismal at best when I was in 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 grade school. But I found vocation and and life in making things. And the idea that you could enrich people's lives by making something, whether it was a little bowl or a plate or a piggy bank, wildly entranced me. And so I took ceramics whenever it was available to me, and it wasn't always available. And then at my boarding school, I got really good at it. And then at my college, I got even better. And I told my mom I wanted to be a ceramics major. And this is a classic story where she pulled the car over the side of the road at Parents Weekend and was like, listen, honey, you need to find something to do that's a little more lucrative. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the joke's on her today. And, you know, I, I see people, like I have some cousins right now who have kids and they're trying out for the NFL. And I find myself shaking my head going, oh my God, that's such a hard goal to achieve. And I'm like... Look at you! You know you, you made it making lamps in this weird profession, and you became the best at it. And it just shows that if you pick your niche and you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, keep doing it because there is failure in the beginning that we all face. Of course. And it wasn't and poverty. all yeah, and poverty, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so you know, I graduated from school, and where did you I, go to school? I went to St. Lawrence University in New York State and way up in the hinterlands Mm -hmm. of New York State. And then I took the summer program at RISD and they wanted me to transfer and I wanted to transfer. But my mom, who was worried about my dyslexia, said, she said, stay and I'll pay for you to go to grad school wherever. So I figured out that I could go back to RISD as a visiting student. And so I spent my senior semester there. And then I did a program in London where I talked my way into central St. Martin's. And in England, they're much more about products and about plates and dishes. They have the whole Stoke-on-Trent factory sort of right, area that right. they produce designers for that, sadly, we don't have much of in America. There's not a lot of American makers. There's small people like myself, you know, who make right, things, and right. I'm, I'm not But it's that small. English
0: tradition. You yeah, Wedgwood loving, Spode, sorry, and Spode. You Wedgwood, know, Spode, Lennox, mm-hmm. all of that, yeah. you know? So I guess they know... The schools feel that there is a place for the students to go when they graduate, whereas in in the United States, like you said, it was a little dubious what you were going to do. I, I
1: guess, but they assigned projects that were doable and recognizable. Like you, you, I think you had to do like a set of plates that could be sold at Barney's or Harrods, you know, which. Mm-hmm. Still can happen. You know, a young designer mm-hmm. can go into Birdorf Goodman with a small line of stuff and have them sell it. And they are actually looking for people to do this kind of stuff with. And that's the thing that most people, I think, lose out on is that they don't take out their phone or reach out to people and say, hey, look at me, you know, and be right. persistent you know right. if you get the right. no the first time you gotta call back and you gotta you gotta knock on that door for a while so I graduated I moved to Washington DC and I was floating around looking for some job um, and I couldn't find anything and my roommate at the time was friends with the White House intern director and she said why don't you come be an intern and there was a opening in the press office and there was an opening in the social office and I said well I don't know which one's more interesting she goes I do the social office so I work for the Clintons and I work for from Thanksgiving Giving through the Easter egg roll, and it was amazing to be there and to be in that house and to answer the phone and and to collect people's social security numbers because you can't have any you know outstanding crimes or anything right, when you go to the right, White the House. Background so. checks, <laughs> little background checks. We don't do it for government. <laughs> <Guns, laughs> what we do it for for, for, the White <laughs> for house. your White House visit, you know, on a social occasion. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, so I did that, and then I had a show at my work in Washington. I had a friend who offered to give me and I made plates and dishes back then. And the show went incredibly well. And Mac Hoke was then opening the very first Mecox Gardens in Southampton. And he said, why don't you come out and be Potter and Residence? So I Packed up my car and kiln, and I drove out there, and I had a dismal summer. Like, the pieces that came out of the kiln either broke immediately or soon thereafter. I had to borrow, like, $200 from Mac to get my sorry little butt back down to Washington, D.C. So, that is the Uh failure and part of the poverty that does affect, you know. I paid Mac back, and the next summer, I had started to make lamps, and I put lamps in his store. And, no, no, back up. Keith Langham ordered some lamps that summer. That Mm -hmm. summer, that what— what I like to say is the the shining light that came out of that summer with, was Keith saying, well, we'll make these lamps. So I went back to Washington, D.C., and I started to work on them. And back then, I just made the vase, and he had somebody who wired them and put them all together. And I learned all those different processes, like how to turn a wooden base, how to mm-hmm. do water gilding, how to get the best electrical parts, and how to put them together. And I think Tom Pheasant was my second client and Albert Hadley was my third. And then Barbara Berry's office called up and she was making things with Baker Furniture back then. And they said, we've done all this furniture, but we have no lamps. And so we need like 34 lamps. And I did my little schedule of getting this work done for the Baker opening. And I got it all done with like, one or two days to spare. And so I had to get in my car and deliver these lamps to Baker because I couldn't afford back then to FedEx them. And Baker was so impressed by the personal delivery that they got from me showing up myself, making sure that the pieces, So it just shows you that like life takes you where you need to go. If you work hard and you do your thing, you get in the car and you drive down to high point and you deliver those lamps yourself, you know, like, you got to get things done. Like I tell people in our studio that we sell lamps, we don't sell excuses. And that doesn't mean that we don't run behind sometimes. And there aren't moments right, that course. we don't get our work done. But in those moments, we lend things out to designers. We say, well, we don't have your pair, but we have another pair of blue lamps that we can send you, and you can have those until they're ready. So we've learned some tricks that make a, a problem a better solution.
0: Right. Now, I, I was fascinated because I read up a little, looking forward to this. Would you describe the process of how you make your lamps? I mean, I know you have mold, but explain the whole process because I think the listeners don't know. I mean, I certainly didn't know.
1: Yeah, so I sit down in a potter. Well, first of all, I find something that I want to do. I shop online all the time. I'm an auction house junkie beyond belief. Like I just spend so much time like looking and searching for new stags and garden things, and while I'm on the way, I see lamp shapes that I like, and I take a screenshot picture of it. I feel it's our duty as designers to make things our own and to not copy. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. said, everything that I do is derivative off of something that I have seen before in some form. I just have made it my own by making a curve a little tighter here, making the base a little wider, maybe picking a different profile. You know, I think that that's our thing. So I sit down at the potter's wheel and I work for a period of like three to four days in the wet where I'm taking pieces and I'm making them and joining them. And then I let things dry and I throw incredibly roughly, which means like, if you look at it, it's like a chunk of wood when I get done. And then I go back in with trimming tools and I trim in all the fine lines and all the sort of nice curves that you need to have in a piece. And then you let it dry, and it gets fired once, and then we put the glaze on. And in the beginning, I used to do all this myself, and then i turn the base, and then I'd gild the bases, and I'd make like eight things at a time. And now all those different parts I used to do are filled by different people who, like we have a full-time gilder, a couple of potters. They're not throwing all of our lamps on the wheel themselves because people wanted things to be 30 inches all the time and have the curve be exactly the same. So I had to give up control of throwing them myself and they're now produced out of mold so you have exactly that size and you can put the piece back on the mold get all the throw the um seam lines out of it and do your sort of my sort of trimming there um before we do the glazing oh
0: yeah because i think a lot of people don't realize still in this day and age how much handwork goes into each item you know oh, yeah. each our big you battle
1: create with our price tag is getting people in the studio and having them realize that we make these things on 35th Street between 7th and 8th Avenue. We have a whole floor of an industrial old garment building and there are nine potters up there working and one manager and a couple of salespeople and stuff, but we're up there doing it all. And you know, especially the husbands, when the husbands get in there and see it, they're like, <laughs> exactly. "I'm done," you know. And yeah. you know, if we're going we to
0: Pottery Barn, no, you're, <laughs> you do not know, No, want, well, no. you
1: know, and the way I explain it is like you can get there in like. A Mercedes, or you can get there in a Volkswagen. And I have a great person, Karen Harlow for the home in, in Palm Springs, and she she talks to her clients and she goes, well, how are we going to fly? Like, I think we're going to fly first class in your living room and in your master bedroom and your den. In those guest mm-hmm. rooms, we can fly coach in there. You know, we can get right. some less expensive things because we don't want people staying around in those rooms forever.
0: <laughs> you right. know, and so. I mean, it seems obvious, but you look at your lamps, as compared to, you know, conventional, whatever, and they're not the same. I mean, the glazes, the color, the richness, the sensibility is very much yours. So, how many people now are on your team, would you say, altogether?
1: I think we're 12, maybe 13. I think we have a job opening. If anybody's looking for a job up here in Millbrook, there's an opening, so... The city we find people very easily up here. Mm. It's a little bit more of a yeah. battle. We do yeah. plates and dishes from up here and accessories, and then lamps and the bigger things are made from the Cidio studio. Right,
0: right, and that's interesting to me too. That I didn't realize that you actually, when you were a student or whatever you were doing plates, because I always thought of you as a lamp person who then went to doing you know the beautiful plates and and um, platters, the marbleized ceramic thing that you do. That's so I think is so special. So. At what point did you start doing that and what was the impetus behind it? Well, a lot of the the showrooms like Holly Hawks, Suzanne Reising, she wanted mm-hmm.
1: to have like parties for me. She'd be like, "Oh, we'll have a party for you and to have somebody come into a party and buy a lamp that's, you know, $3500 sometimes is a little bit of a reach, but you know you can come in and buy a mug or a set of plates and that's a little bit easier. So it I, it helped me to diversify and it helped me to Embrace the things I love, too, because I love dishes, and I, you know, all that kind of stuff is my favorite. So, to design our own and have our own ones, it's like, how, how good is that?
0: Yeah, and they're really amazing um, and beautiful, and I think they've been a big success for you, no? They have been. They have yeah. been. Yeah, yeah. So, that's something else I want to ask you about, because when you were starting out, I think there wasn't as much respect for ceramics. <laughs> and for handmade things <laughs> i you know we <laughs> You're laughing, so but that, I that,
1: that reminds me of a funny antidote story that I like to tell us. When I lived in Washington, D.C., and I told people I was a potter, they looked at me like I farted. They were like, oh, bless <laughs> your heart. What do I oh say? Oh, my right? God. <laughs> yeah, and you know, from the beginning, I was making lamps for the Bob Bennetts, the Clinton's lawyers were one of Tom Pheasant's clients that I was making things from. I mean, right away, we had very good placement and, and good, you know, but...
0: Well, who I else were they going to turn to? There was nobody else making
1: that. But part of it was my problem. I didn't right. know how to convey that. Right. And I still don't convey it in a just way. You know, Albert Hadley was very humble. He never said, oh, you know, like, I work for the Rockefellers and the Mellons or whatever. You, There was just something about Albert that you knew was regal and respectful, and he demanded – this sort of respect, without ever saying, you know, do you know who I am? Like, right. no, no, no he would way. Never that that. Right. never. Right. Oh yeah, you know, Albert never said like keep following or like anything like that. Yeah, he was like, you know, warm and embracing, and he he went out of his way to find young talent like myself and to push us forward. That was the thing that he did, and so I try and incorporate that in my my thing. And you know, I, thankfully, I don't have to do much explaining now because people know when they hear my name what, what I do, and if they don't. I just say I make lamps, and I let them right. figure it out because right. I'm not here to, you know, right.
0: You know, it's like anything else. You can go and buy a jacket at the Gap, or you can buy a jacket mm-hmm. from Kiton. It's like everybody mm-hmm. has their level, and but it was amazing to me how quickly you got, reached that high level. But I, like I said, I think it's also there. Were, there weren't a lot of people doing what you were doing. There are more people now. Not exactly what you're doing, obviously, and whatever, but there is, there has been, don't you think, a change and there's more respect and interest in all kinds of ceramics now, both vintage and new? Thankfully, yes. I don't think
1: the vintage stuff gets near the credit that it should. I can buy creamware plates and old things that used to be thousands of dollars at bardith now for hundreds of dollars on eBay or cherish you know you can go out there and get really good old stuff now for for really nothing but there is a, a resurgence in craft and embracing that and I'm really glad to see that because we need to support these young artisans out there that are starting out you know lots of them have worked for me there's a guy Nick Newcomb who's gone out and he has his own studio where he does dishes that you can buy at krB there's you know when when somebody leaves my studio I'm always is happy to see that they they've they've made it so yeah
0: yeah, it, it does seem like, as I said, we're in a bit of a maker's moment now, finally, but this is like, what, 20 years after you got started, right?
1: It's sad because, you know, I would see my mom buy things, like she bought some of those Francis Elkin hoop-back chairs, mm-hmm. and she found somebody in our hometown, East Aurora, New York, this little town in Western New York, who could make it and make that little part of the leg that is so important in that design and to get all that. Like, she would find these craftspeople out there and give them work. Yeah,
0: I think, obviously, Society has not respected. We did a podcast about this, and it's a constant going thing. You know, how do you support artisans? Why? How do you encourage young people? Not everybody should go to college. Not everybody wants to go to college and end up with all that debt. And how do we make trades and craftsmanship more respected in our society? And you know, I, it's an ongoing issue. And God knows, all the designers can't find enough artisans to execute their visions. And um, you know, I think you don't have to worry that you're gonna have a thriving business for a long time to come, you know no, in the beginning it's it's hard, but i I coach people in saying the only way you're
1: really going to make it successfully is if you go out there on your own, you know, like that's the best way to do it. you know, Anthony, my partner in Covid opened a shop up here in Millbrook, and it's been. It's been a battle for them. It's not always easy. Everybody looks at it from the outside. When you look at something on Instagram, you think it's all all easy. But Millbrook is not a big retail town. It's not like Southampton or Greenwich or Darien. You know, it's a it's a a different customer out of here. But we we've created something with Creel and Gow that people get in their car and drive up from Greenwich, or they come from Connecticut, and then we've made it. Worthwhile to make the journey up here. So if you do it and you build it, people will come, but it's not like, oh, I just hung out my shingle and like this money's flooding in. You know, it's not been like that. And there's low moments where he knows that like in the middle of summer right now, it's going to be really quiet. And Mm then September comes around and Christmas and it's better again. And then January happens and it's slower and, you know, Thank God one of us has got a steady job to keep us all going. But, you know, you you figure out how to work it and angle it.
0: Hi, everybody. And thanks for joining us for another episode of the Cherish podcast. I'm Anna Brockway, co-founder and president of Cherish. And I'm delighted to announce that Cherish is now offering, only to the trade, the most generous returns policy in our industry. That is a 14-day return window on all our exceptionally curated inventory of home furnishings and art purchased by the trade. Designers asked for it, and we listened. This free offer is now available to interior designers on purchases made between now through October 31st. So it's time to get shopping. For more information, visit cherish.com slash trade. That's dot com backslash trade. And now back to our show. That brings up, of course, social media and Instagram, because one of the things that amazed me about you was how brilliantly, and how early on, and how brilliantly you adapted to Instagram in particular, which is where I've been following you for forever, and you know how you used it to sort of build awareness of you and also Clovebrook Farm. So I want you to talk a little about what was the impetus behind that. Did you? Were you excited about when you started the renovations, in particular, of your fa- your house and farm? Was that something you thought? Because I know people say, oh, you know, Christopher Spitzmiller, he's the next Martha Stewart. Um, or, you know, the next Chip Gaines or whatever. I don't even know who to compare you to because you're so inimitable. But, you know, was that a plan or was that something that just evolved? It
1: just happened. And I had no idea that people would be interested. I did have the idea especially in gardening, of educating people, which is the mm-hmm. same thing that Martha has and holds mm-hmm. right, dear absolutely. to her heart is it's right. all about teaching. And when I do a post, I try and impart the reader and the viewer in some sort of lesson. Like, this is what I learned. I mean, sometimes it's just a table setting and that's just beautiful. But if it's something in the garden or the progress on the barn that I'm building, it's like, here's here's where we are. Here's what we ran into that I didn't expect, you know? It's it's not about, like, look at me, you know, I've, I've done all this. It's like, right. I don't It's look not all it finished way.
0: pictures, you know. No, like, it's oh, not
1: all finished pictures. They're all right. taken with my iPhone. Occasionally, right. I'll use one from the book that the Ingalls took, but, like, ninety 90- five Six percent of what I post are images that I take with my phone, and I do it all myself. Nobody else gets in it. There's a business Instagram that's run by the studio that I'm involved with, but they do that part of it. I'm not great at pushing my own product. That's one Mm -hmm. thing that Martha does say to me. She's like, you should push your own product more than you do. But I'm more interested in, in what I'm learning and what I can impart in some somebody else and what they can somebody else can take away from it than I am about hey look at me you know that's yeah. not my thing you yeah.
0: know well and i think it's very your feed is very authentic it's very you like you said you do it yourself and people can sense that but talk a little about how you found the the house and the farm and were you intimidated at first cuz it you know it it was a beautiful house but you you had big plans so <laughs> and that you still have big plans it seems yeah so, you know, I had friends like
1: Stephen Gambrell who had these houses, and right. I didn't have anything. in had and I, many houses. Yeah, you no. Know. <laughs> well, now he has millions. Back, back then, there was one house in Sag Harbor that right. he had, but now Famous he's house. gone on. You know, he's yes. gone way, way further. But I decided I wanted my own house, and I saved money. I religiously put some money into an account. And I went, went down this thing, and I looked in the Hamptons, and that was out of my price range, and Through Jamie Creel, I had found Millbrook, which is similar to the countryside in Charlottesville, Virginia, that I spent a lot of time in when I was in Washington, D.C., and I love the kooky people up here. And I had a house with Todd Romano, who I dated, and when we broke up, Todd wanted to have that much more money than I wanted to pay for it. And I took some time out, saved some more, and I bought this house that... John Robshaw and other friends refer to as the grown-up house because it has a big presence and it's it's a Greek revival house. It's not as big as it looks from the outside. It's 3,500 square feet and the living room that I'm sitting in right now is 15 by 15. It's a bedroom up above it, which is mine that's that size. So, it's it's rather modest in its scale inside, but it has all these big moldings on it. And my friend, Petty Madison, said to me when I sent her pictures of it where there were honeybees living in it, and she'd be like, it's a good thing you're young because I paid $565,000 for a piece of history that I needed to sort of reclaim. And I knew if I did it slowly, it would give me something to focus on and would fuel me to work harder and to make the money. And I did projects like painted the whole outside and then I replaced it, the windows and Margaret Russell would be calling me saying, I want to shoot your house. And I'd be like, you want to shoot the new fireplaces or the new <laughs> um, HVAC <laughs> system, come on up here. But yeah. like, there's nothing going on in this house. And right. you know, w- what I've learned works with editors is saying no to them. You know, they're like, You know, and I wasn't saying no because I was crafting anything. I had no plan up my sleeve. I just was serious. I'm like, there's nothing up here to photograph right now. And then when there was, there was. And you know, it was six years of expensive renovation work. Right. Well, that's what
0: that's the tragedy of anybody who buys a house, especially an old old house. Is for the first at least three years, every you're spending. Every dime and none of it shows.
1: None of it it's, shows. None of it shows. So it's, it's, I was living with moving. And as a visual person, now.
0: that's a heartbreak, you know? It,
1: it is, but I entertained and I had people over. Of course, and I right. wasn't embarrassed of it. Like no. it just was where it's I a lived. And yeah. Well, I wanted to show people where I was on mm. it. And, you know, so
0: right. Absolutely. You you enjoy your house at whatever stage it's at. I, I, But, you know, it's like, oh, now the boiler. Now, you know, the walkway. Now the driveway. Oh, I got to get gravel. Oh, I, I got to get the trees pruned. You know, all this stuff that doesn't have immediate visual impact. But, of course, it, you know, nobody wants to end up with their show place that's falling down. And I have seen some People do that, you know. They spend everything on the wallpaper, and then the roof is caving in. You know that, that was side. an
1: Albert Hadley awesome that I picked up. He goes, "You have to get the bones right before you do anything else." Oh, right. And it was true. You you have to get all that stuff in place and those fireplaces in the kitchen, and then then you can have fun decorating. But until right. then, like
0: you gotta right. right right. So now you've had this house since two thousand and five, right? So it's been a while. Yeah. So. What was your order? Did like, did you originally think, oh, I want to have a farm, I want to have chickens, I want to do, or was that was this all just stuff that you learned along the way and said, you know what, why don't I have some chickens? Or was it a dream from the beginning? You know, part of it was a
1: dream, but then the other part of it is it just sort of happened at the right moment where – I had the house and I was in it for long enough and I had started the work. And then I was like, okay, let's have chickens. And I carved out an area of the old dairy barn that was the old milk room and put up a run. And I ordered some chickens from Murray McMurray. And then I start going to fancy poultry shows and buying really good chickens. And the next thing you know it, you're going to these poultry shows with Martha Stewart, you know, and like, <laughs> you're like, how did this happen? You know? Yeah, you didn't dream that. <laughs> no, you, you, you didn't dream that she'd call you and be like, you know, what fertilizer this morning, what fertilizer are you putting on your um, myrtle topiary? And I'm like... You know, here's the person who led the light for all of us for years, and she'll at moments, you know, ask me like, mm-hmm. "What are you doing?" Because mm-hmm. yours are looking better than mine, and like th- that's <laughs> the thing is, you know, when I know when both of us have a bad sweet pea year, we've it's the weather, it's not us. You know, right. that right. that's what I sort right. of gauge things on when both of us fail because we do things sort of sequentially at the same time, and you know, it, it just that's a, my good talisman,
0: right. Right. So what are you thinking about next for Clover?
1: Well, we're still working on the barn. It's not done and I haven't posted about it. We're the barn is big, and there were for, for the wedding that we had the dinner of. You know, we had the whole front facade sort of sided, and or when I say sided, like we had the azac put on there. But there's there's two sides that still need the siding. There's staircases for the inside that need to go up in there. There's there's other smaller tasks. I'm just not writing the checks as vivaciously as I used to be because I'm like, we gotta calm down on this for a right. while. And that's the nice thing about working on projects outside of your house is you can take a break for a while. You know like with a garden or your dove coat or your pool you know you can start it and be like all right we got to take a break for a, a little bit um and slow things down but when it's your kitchen or your bedroom you're like go yeah, get the You can, gotta have a place you know? to cook and a
0: place to sleep absolutely yeah, <laughs> yeah and so but,
1: we're out of the house now which is good and i don't have anything going on in here so it's 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 easier and then after we get done with that i would like a greenhouse that's the next thing that's on
0: my my docket to do in terms of the house, where did you find your inspiration? Because I mean, you have that incredibly charming pool house. You have the very classic dove code. I mean, where do you where where did you go for examples? All over. You know,
1: I mean, Gil Schaefer's architecture influences me. Incredibly old Greek revival architecture. You know, that building is based off of – the pool house building is based off of the Temple of Pan at Austerly Park. And the horns on the outside is something that the Bannermans do, which are a husband and wife team in England, and they've done them at – uh, Arendelle and at um, Highgrove and at um, Houghton, you know, you find inspiration everywhere. And Paige Dixie, Dickey did a, she's a gardener friend of mine, she did a um, a post about the the horn folly at Arendelle, and that's how I found that. And Albert Hadley had a scrapbook that had an oval pool in it. And I was like, oh, my God, I want an oval pool. Everybody's got these rectangles. So inspiration is sort of everywhere. And your friends, like Harry House Heisman helped me decorate the interior of this house. And this is not Harry's style. This is my right. style. And he'll tell you, you know, right. this is... This is it. I love Harry. Having somebody to hold your hand through things and still, I'll be like, should I buy this? And Harry's like, you don't need that, honey. You know? And that's good for a friend right.
0: to tell you, like, you've got enough. Like don't right. get that so right, right. and i want what about travel do you travel a lot in terms of looking for inspiration going to england and places like that or we haven't been
1: to the continent since uh, covid hit which i mm-hmm. no need to change but i've been mm-hmm. so busy in my own life and frankly content here that i don't want to go right now so um, but inspirations, I don't know, it's it's endless. I still find it. It's not like, oh my God, I've seen everything. You know, you you got to keep your eyes open to nature and to what's around you and you'll find yeah.
0: it. I, I want to get back a little bit to product because you don't push it enough, as Martha said. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but how do you think about, because what's interesting to me is, you know, I was looking at your website and how many, Variations now. It seems like you've added a lot more variations in the shapes. And like I look at some of your lamps, and I see you know classic Chinese forms or whatever. But now you've added lots of different variations in the shapes, variations in the textures. How do you think about expanding your product lines, but but while staying true to, of course, who you are and your vision? Well, one
1: of the things that I did that I'm very proud of was, you know, I partnered with Visual Comfort and I have a line of, of things with them, which is really good because I give them the, the like design. Kind of like a preta,
0: predeporte level. Yes. Range, so I give them the control. design, they right.
1: manufacture it right. and they produce it and they pay me, thankfully, a very nice royalty from the whole process. And it's um, a great company. It's nice it has- to not be on the a line for all that stuff. It's a lot that they do and they're versed at it and they handle it all very, very well. So that helped to do to help expand without doing it myself because it was hard for me to let go of the control of it and let somebody else make something with my name on it, but I did it and they're good. And it didn't seem to threaten our business. It seems to go into the other rooms or the younger people who can't afford what I do. You know, like, that's the part. So we, right now, we're expanding the most in texture. Texture seems to be the next sort of frontier. And we're doing, like, this herringbone line thing and this basket weave thing and then putting our rich colors on it. And it takes somebody, like, 24 hours in the studio of, of just work time to put all of these lines on. And the price tag goes up much, much more for a piece like this. But the people are buying them. You know, like the more unique the piece and the more different it is, I see more sort of want for it. You know, and that's not that everything needs to be a million dollars. You need to have a variety of prices and a variety right. of things out there. But the higher end stuff, people seem to be be going for.
0: And ha- have you seen over the past several years a shift in the color palette that people want? Because it seems like you have many more colors than I've always. I just
1: wasn't aware. You know, I mean, I've always had like seventy five different colors you could choose from, and then we do custom colors too. I mean, we see shifts. You know, like Prussian blue was sort of our like main thing for Mm -hmm. a lot of years. Yeah, and now we're we're moving into sort of like greens now. That is client driven. I mean, I like the greens, but we do things for what the designers want. Um, Of course, and. What Kate Brodsky asked for, right? <laughs> Another, you, know, you never she, say no to Kate. No, you don't <laughs> say no to Kate, and uh, Kate thankfully doesn't say no to me too, which is which right. is great. Right? So. Yeah.
0: You know, we've done some podcasts on trends, and like people were saying, oh, they're seeing more warm reds coming up, and people seem to be more. In- Do you notice that in in your orders that you get? I don't notice that so much. I just
1: notice that we seasonally a little bit, but. You know, I'm happy that there, there's more embracing of traditional because while mm-hmm. some of the stuff that I make is more contemporary and is yeah, more modern, yeah. there's a traditional vein throughout the whole thing. And you know, the the decorators that I initially started working with are not ordering so much, and I am order. I'm working for this whole new crop of decorators that some of them I I, I haven't met and I don't really even know, but they're like buying voraciously and and. Decorating houses with very traditional stuff, which I find to be really, really heartwarming and embracing to see a a new group of people come in and and be our clients.
0: That's right. No, and it's interesting because, you know, God knows there's all sorts of lighting now. I mean, with the LEDs and the sun, you know, there's all these high tech and, you know, Salone every couple of years, it's a lighting thing. And there's like, it's wild. And I find it very reassuring that lamps, that people still want a lamp.
1: I like old fashioned light bulbs. I think that they're the most flattering. You know the, the well. That's G- a whole
0: other podcast the, on light bulbs. The, the, the GE
1: old right. fashioned ones right. that are right. sometimes hard to find. Like that's the light bulb for me. I don't want any LED thing. Right. I don't. I want and with a shade. Of course, know,
0: there's nothing yeah. more old-fashioned than a beautiful shade, but there's nothing more necessary, you know? Yeah. So, And in terms of, you know, that brings up, I had thought to ask you, but I'm going to ask you now. In terms of shades, you guys make your own shades, right? Well, we have or them made, and you, so you there's a them shade made. maker. I'm not saying you're yeah. sewing them in the, in the back room. No, but, 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 <laughs> but a
1: lamp, when you order a lamp, it comes with a shade. We right, send everything out with right. a vellum paper, warm, white, glow yeah. sort of shade. And most things, when I see them photographs, are used with the shades that we send out with them. But Blanche Field makes great shades. Kate has great shades at KRB. You can get great shades anywhere. Some people have them made. And right. somebody joked, right. like, I didn't think the Christopher smith Labs could get any more expensive. And then we ordered the shades. Like <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> When Ashley Whitaker's client said that to me, and I'm like, yeah, it does. It's it's lot, <laughs> you know. So. But the good thing about when you buy something from me, it's going to last for generations. And when I see things come up at auction, they sell for... Half of what they are, which you know, it used to be the case. If you bought an old sofa or whatever, if you paid five hundred dollars for like a DeAngelo sofa, that was that was a, a lot. Or you have thousand dollars, and now the sofas are selling at like stair, stair for like nine thousand, five thousand. Like yeah. there's all of a sudden like this need for like upholstery that wasn't out there before, and this right. appreciation and, of and, like great quality. You
0: know, yeah. that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Great quality, like you give great quality, and it's like. Um, it's so interesting, you know. Again, getting back to that handmade thing, there's something about pieces that are handmade that are going to retain their soul, shall we say, over generations. You know, I mean, they're they're better quality, they last, but they also have something I think that speaks to you. Like even like when you were saying when you have a water gilded wood base on your lamps, I mean, that is something that is very unusual and it raises it up not that they're not the ceramic part isn't beautiful it it is but you yeah. know all your fittings the base all of that just elevates it I think to an even higher level and the that that attention that you pay to every element of the of what a lamp does um I think is makes it really something unique you know miles red says
1: about it he's like you should only cry once in a purchase and there's there's few things that I've Purchased on the higher end of the scale that I've regretted. Mm-hmm. There's more things that I've purchased on the lower end of the scale that I've been like, why did yeah. you get that? Like, yeah. you know. But if you if you know what you're doing, you, you and especially if you're working with a designer who says, yeah, you should buy this, just just do what they say and right. buy it. Don't fight right. them. Right,
0: because they, they that's the other thing when when designers see the whole market, they they I almost immediately will know the difference. Between something that's special, but yet and, people
1: fight with their decorators. It's like I don't fight with my doctor when my doctor tells me. I, I sometimes hold my tongue when mm-hmm. he's like, "Oh, you shouldn't do this." I'll be like, mm. "Yeah, <laughs> cut back on the <laughs> but, sugar." But, yeah, yeah. Pounds, I'm, uh, but I'm not just, gonna fight with them. Uh, I'm not gonna right, be like, right, "Oh, right. I really think it should be orange." Or, you <laughs> know what right, I mean? Right. And the, the you know, like you go to somebody for a reason. And if you invest in a, a designer, listen to them. And they, they've been around the block. They know what they're doing. Just sit back and, and enjoy the experience. Yeah, so.
0: yeah. And I, I find it so encouraging that the whole a young generation of designers are turning to you, recognizing the value. I think that's really a great thing. So, you know, Christopher, I can't thank you enough. This has been so informative and entertaining, which is always what I love the most. Like you said, you obviously are a great teacher. You know, and in that sense, you're emulating your friend Martha, and I think that's a wonderful thing. And just keep up making the beautiful product and, and doing your great social media feed because I think it, it is thank you informative and charming and gives people a lot of ideas. Like you were saying how inspiration can come from anywhere. Believe me it comes from you. Thank you so much, Chris. This has been wonderful. And thank everyone for listening to the Cherish Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Cherish podcast brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word and we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at dot com. The Cherished Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hanger Studios in New York. Until next time.